Well, as you know, one of my favorite things, speaking of kids, one of my favorite things to do is to listen to what kids have to say, kind of their perspective on things and how they view things. And being that last week was, uh, I talked about Super Bowl Sunday, but yet, or last Monday was also Valentine's Day. I uh, didn't mention that, and hopefully you all had a, uh, a good uh, Valentine's Day. But um, I, I did want to share a few thoughts with you on how kids view and describe love, and then we'll move into our lesson this morning. But uh, when asked why love happens between two people, one little girl said, no one is sure why it happens, but I think it has something to do with how you smell. That's why perfume and deodorant are so popular. Another little boy said, I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something, but the rest of it isn't supposed to be so painful. When asked about the role of good looks when it comes to love, one little boy said, it isn't always just how you look. I mean, look at me. I'm really handsome, and I haven't gotten anybody to marry me yet. When asked about how people typically act when they're in love, one little girl said, when a person gets kissed for the first time, they fall down, and they don't get up for at least an hour. When asked why people in love often hold hands, one little boy said, they want to make sure their rings don't fall off because they paid good money for them. That makes sense, right? When asked about falling in love, one little boy said, Love will find you, even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, and the girls keep finding me. One little little girl said, I'm not rushing into being in love. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough. So, uh, When asked some of the qualities you need to be in love and get married, one little girl said, One of you should know how to write a check, because even if you have tons of love, there's still going to be a lot of bills to pay. So she's right on that one. Uh, when asked about some surefire ways to make a first person fall in love with you, one little boy said, tell them that you own a bunch of candy stores. So that seems to work well. Uh, another little boy said, don't do things like have smelly feet. You might get attention, but attention ain't the same thing as love. So that's good advice to know. Another little boy said, one way is to take the girl out to eat. Make sure it's something she likes to eat. French fries usually works for me. And when asked about how to make love last, one little boy said, spend most of your time loving instead of going to work. thought that was cute. Uh, One little girl said, don't forget your wife's name. That will mess up the love. That's also true. And lastly, as one little boy said, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. So there you go. Uh, At any rate, we are in the midst of a series that we've been in for the last several weeks called Uh, the good life, in which we're walking through Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're not going to be talking specifically about the subject of love, uh, but we are going to be talking about a component of love as we look at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, where he says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, on the surface, this seems like a pretty straightforward verse about showing mercy and in turn being shown mercy by God. But understand when Jesus says these words, in many ways it was yet another counter-cultural bombshell that he was dropping right in the middle of the Roman Empire. Because for life in the Roman Empire, which ruled the ancient world, that wasn't how anybody viewed mercy. Mercy was not an ideal to be to, he- to be held up, to be lauded, to be applauded, to be strived for. If anything, mercy was kind of something that was looked down upon, not dissimilar to, in some ways, what we looked at a few weeks ago in talking about meekness. Uh, mercy was seen, really, in many ways, as an opponent, the opposite of the Roman ideal of justice, something that they held up 
at all costs. And the reason why this is such a big deal to Rome is because mercy was all about providing something to somebody that didn't earn it, that, that didn't merit it, that didn't deserve it. And so you're providing unearned resources, unearned help, unearned relief to somebody who doesn't deserve it. To, to show mercy was to show favor upon someone who had done nothing to, to really earn that or deserve that, what was being given to them. And, and for the Roman ideal, it, it wasn't mercy. Again, it was justice that was to be held up. That's what it was all about, getting help because you deserved it or, 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 or being strong and, 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 and all of them kind of coming together because you've earned it. Another reason why mercy was so looked down upon was because it was kind of contrary to the Roman idea of how you maintain power and control. And that was what was at the top of the list as far as what Rome considered important. If, if you show mercy, then you wind up being taken advantage of. People are going to take advantage of, of your influence and your power and your resources. They're going to walk all over you. People will no longer fear you. And so hence the motto, no mercy. N-O mercy. That's not just a motto for the athletic field or for karate kid um, that we so often see today, but that's a motto that's been passed down for centuries from the Roman Empire. And on top of that, showing mercy was definitely not how the Roman gods operated. That's just not the way reality worked. And so you better look out for numero uno. You better look out for yourself because if you don't, no one else is going to look out for you. You don't need to show mercy. You need to demand justice. And so that's part of why the proclamation of Jesus saying, blessed are the merciful, was such a stunner against that backdrop because he's holding up mercy as an ideal to be applauded and, and, and lived out. I mean, today we think of, yeah, we, we should be merciful as Christians, but back then and even still today in our culture, it's not really something to be applauded and, 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 and upheld. I mean, you, you get something because you deserve it, you know, and or because you were, you know, you, you have a right to it, right? Even even if you did nothing to get it, you, you have a right to it. And that's the way we, we think about things. And yet Jesus brings a, a whole different mindset and way of, of thinking about things. It's a, it's a fundamental value in the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes it clear that not only does his father show mercy, but his father's also looking after the lives of those who show mercy. This is how his father, this is how the king runs things in his kingdom. And so mercy is not quite the negative that Rome would have you to believe that it is. But not only is Jesus, what he says, countercultural to what was going on in that day, but this is also his first attempt to kind of start setting the stage for what he's going to talk about a lot when it comes to the religious leaders, because they had lost sight of this ideal of mercy in their own lives. They'd lost touch with this value of mercy. And throughout the gospel of Matthew, you're going to find Jesus continuing to call them back to mercy. In Matthew chapter 9, the religious leaders react negatively to Jesus eating a meal with tax collectors and, and sinners. And they say to his disciples, why, why, why is your teacher doing this? What, what's the purpose of this? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus hears them saying this, and, and, and he says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice, because I, for I have come, not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so for Jesus, eating with sinners and tax collectors is an expression of mercy. And in quoting from Isaiah, he was basically saying, what good is it to, to come to church and, 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 and perform all these worship rituals 
and then you leave church, you leave the temple, and you act like this, and you don't treat people with, with mercy and love and, and, and grace. Jesus, again, quotes this very same verse to the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, when he laments, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Again, Jesus keeps driving home mercy to the religious leaders. He says again in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so here Jesus chastises them for being so meticulous about tithing. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to give back to God. It's a good thing to tithe. But they weren't nearly as attentive to the more important matters like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so all three of these examples, Jesus is getting after the religious leaders for majoring in the minors and losing sight of the majors, one of which is mercy. They lost sight of what the prophet Micah had said about God when in Micah chapter 6 verse 8 he says, He has shown you, O people, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And then in Micah chapter 7 verse 18 he says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. Our God delights to show mercy, and he delights in his people delighting to show mercy. And this is something that the religious leaders had lost sight of in their lives. And to be honest, I think it's something that religious people today lose sight of in our lives even today. And and a lot of people tend to think and and gravitate towards the idea that that worshiping God and and my relationship with God is just this vertical thing that happens between me and God. And that is important. I mean, our connection to God and our worship of God, you know, it starts with that, that vertical connection to Him. But God's value on mercy reminds us that worshiping God isn't just a vertical thing between us and Him. It's also a horizontal thing between us and each other and those around us. There's a story about a 5th century monk by the name of Simeon. And he was so frustrated, he grew so frustrated with just the, the casual nature and the, the, just the very tepid and lukewarm nature of the Christianity and the Christians around him that, that he said, I, I, I'm just, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to separate myself. And so he built this 50-foot pole. And on top of this 50-foot pole, he built a platform that he could live on, basically. And so he pretty much lived on the platform on top of that 50-foot pole, just devoting himself to prayer and fasting as a way of removing himself from the culture and the Christianity around him and just the the tepid nature of of the Christianity. For 35 years he did that. Now, I will say that is a level of commitment that can be admired. (laughs) And and there is a level of zeal and and, and kind of fervor and, and passion for God that certainly could be admired. But I think Simeon's also an example of, of, the, the, of the thinking that the worship that God desires is exclusively this vertical thing between us and God. And, and yet we fail to maximize the importance of how we treat one another and, and how we show mercy and grace to one another. It's not just our, our worship. This is good that we're here today, but if we walk outside of these walls and, and we treat people with disrespect and, and a lack of 
mercy, then what are we really doing? And God's emphasis on mercy reminds us that worship happens not just at the top of the pole, but also at the bottom of the pole too, amidst the people and situations that call for mercy to be shown. That's mercy, that's worship too. It's little wonder then that mercy is on the front of Jesus' words about the kingdom of God. And in fact, what we see is that this theme of mercy just continues to run throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' teachings regarding so many of the things that, he are, that he's going to talk about are grounded in the soil of mercy. And so in the middle of a Roman Empire and a religious culture that so often lived by the motto of no mercy, as in N-O mercy, Jesus calls his followers to know, K-N-O-W, mercy, and to live that value out. And part of coming to know mercy and love mercy is applying ourselves to learning about it, right? It's one of those things, again, as we've talked about throughout this Sermon on the Mount, these are not natural things for us. It's not natural to be meek. It's not natural to want to talk about our brokenness. It's not natural to, 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 to be merciful. That's not our natural inclination of our hearts. And so we need to learn it. We need to grow in it, just as Jesus is trying to get the religious leaders to do. And so I want to spend the rest of our time today hopefully helping us to get to know mercy a little bit better. And obviously there's a sense in which getting to know something is when you're actually experiencing it in real life. And so hopefully you take what we talk about this morning and go out and, and live it. But hopefully we can help to frame our hearts and our minds just a little bit on, on, our, on our understanding of mercy. And so I'm just going to give you four things, four simple things. Um, I feel like the last couple of weeks I've given you a, a lot of notes. So I just tried to keep things simple this morning. So four simple things that mercy is. And the first one is this. Mercy is a need. Mercy is a need. And knowing mercy and becoming merciful has a lot to do with me seeing my own need for it. Just not dissimilar to what we talked about with being poor in spirit. I think it's worth noting that the word mercy begins with what two letters? M-E, right? Me. Check out what Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humbled themselves will be exalted. It's no wonder that the Pharisees weren't noted for giving mercy. And maybe from Jesus' perspective, that was because they didn't think they needed mercy. And if you don't think you need it, then you're probably not going to be quick to give it. Because knowing mercy and becoming merciful begins with us first recognizing our need for it. That mercy begins with me. And again, as I've talked about throughout this, 
this sermon series, and I'm going to continue to harp on as we get through the, the Beatitudes. Maybe I won't mention it after we get through the Beatitudes, but it, all of them are connected together. You just see how they all flow together here in the early part of Matthew chapter 5, because the only way that we get to Jesus' words about becoming merciful is by going through the door of realizing Jesus' words about being poor in spirit. That we are poor in spirit, that we are spiritually broken, and we don't have the capacity or the resources in and of ourselves to fix our brokenness. And we need mercy. We need something given to us that is outside of ourselves. Paul would later say in Titus chapter 3 verse 5, God saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And so mercy is a need, and it begins with me. But secondly, mercy is also a gift. Mercy is a, a gift. It's not a wage that we earn. It's a gift that we are given. The story, one of my favorite stories goes that uh, a woman appeared before Napoleon to plead for her son's life as he was about to be executed. And as she pleaded, Napoleon responded to her that the punishment fit the crime. I mean, he, you know, the, the punishment fit what he did, and so he deserves what he's about to get. It's justice, right? And the woman replied, well, I'm not here to talk about justice. I'm here to plead for mercy. And Napoleon said he doesn't deserve mercy. And she responded, it wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. That's why mercy is what I'm asking for. It's said that Napoleon was so moved by her response that he granted her son's pardon. And she's right. Mercy or deserve has nothing to do with mercy. As Psalm 103 verse 10 says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve. That's what we deserve. Or repay us according to our iniquities. That's what we deserve. But instead He gave us Jesus. He gave us a gift. That's what makes it mercy. And so mercy is a need. It's also a gift. And third, mercy is an action. Like mercy is not just an attitude or a feeling. Mercy is an action. Or as Forrest Gump might say, mercy is as mercy does, right? Mercy is an action. It's a verb. I think it's worth noting that as the gospel of Matthew unfolds, mercy refers to actions that are more than just forgiveness. You know, a lot of times in Christian culture, we tend to think of, you know, relegating mercy to simply having to do with forgiveness, right? But the truth is, mercy's bigger than that. It can transcend forgiveness and include other things. For instance, just a couple of passages to think about. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, there are two blind men who call out to Jesus to have mercy on them. What are they asking for? They're asking for Jesus to heal them, right? And he does. Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, a woman asked for Jesus to have mercy upon her daughter who's suffering from demonic oppression. What's she asking for? She's asking for Jesus to, to, to deliver her daughter from demonic oppression, and he does. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 14 and 15, a man asked Jesus to have mercy on his epileptic son. Again, what's he asking for? He's asking for Jesus to heal his son, and Jesus does. And so all, in all of these stories, mercy has very little to do with forgiveness or the absolution of sin. In those stories, mercy has to do with compassion that's put into action. Something is done, right? An action results, not just from a feeling, but an action results. Or think about the story of the Good Samaritan. Many of you know that story, very familiar with that story. In Luke chapter 10, a man is hijacked while he's making his way along the road, and he's robbed, he's beaten, he's left for dead, and a priest come by, come, comes by, sees him. What's the priest do? Walks on, walks on the other side of the road, right? 
It just kind of ignores him. Levite comes by, does the same thing. But then of all things, a Samaritan, a low-life, worthless pagan in the eyes of the Jews, sees the man, has compassion on him, and takes action to help him. He binds his wounds. He takes him to a place where he can heal up, and he pays for everything. And Jesus wraps up the story by asking the crowd this question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, and I love his reply, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and what? Do likewise. Go and do likewise. Jesus does not say go and feel the same compassion for them. Feel a, feel a, a tender twinge in your heart for them. But go and do likewise. Mercy isn't simply an attitude or a feeling. Mercy is a verb. It's an action. Mercy is as mercy does. Mercy is like faith without works, without action. It's dead. In fact, the word for merciful in, in this passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, in the original Greek language, literally means active compassion, generous in deeds of deliverance. And so you can almost translate it, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who are actively compassionate. Blessed are those who are generous in deeds of deliverance. Gener mercy is about compassionate, generous action that delivers someone in need. And it's interesting, if you go forward just a little bit into Matthew chapter 6, which we'll get there in a, in, a, in a few weeks, when Jesus begins to talk about giving to the needy, the word that Jesus uses for merciful here in Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 is from the same Greek root word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 6 to talk about giving to those in need. And so there, mercy is inextricably intertwined with the giving of our resources, putting into action, not just saying we care for the poor, not just saying we care for those who are in need, but actually doing something about it and giving because mercy is an action. Mercy is as mercy does. There's a story that I, I've known for a few years now, but I, I just find it so fascinating and it's only been exacerbated in our culture more and more. But many of you know the name Bill Nye, the science guy. Um, he was speaking at a lecture at the University of Southern California several years ago. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the lecture, he just passed out and hit the floor. Boom. Which is interesting in and of itself. But the interesting thing, one of the interesting things that came out of that story, one of the stories that came out of that incident, was how when Nye passed out, Bill Nye, the science guy, passed out, how many students just sat in their seats, didn't get up to help, didn't do anything except pull out their phones and begin to tweet and post and text? It'd be like me passing out and not a one of you guys doing anything, which maybe you're, you, you wouldn't anyways, but you know, and just watching me and getting on your phones and, and saying, oh my goodness, you know, preacher just passed out on stage, poor guy, you know. Oh my goodness, Bill Nye just passed out. Poor guy. Sociologists are seeing this kind of behavior more and, and more and more, and this thinking exponentially increasing year after year. And, and so many people in our culture, so many Christians included, thinking that because they tweet, or they post, or they text, or they call, 
about a situation that requires some help or some intervention, that they've actually intervened and done something about it, right? Because I posted it, well, then I've done something to help the greater good, right? And we see that more and more and more. But mercy is not as mercy tweets or texts or calls. Mercy is as mercy does. And when you think about it, God did far more than simply call or text or tweet a few words about our condition. Instead, he saw to it that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and did something about our sinful condition. He didn't just offer words with mercy, but he offered mercy embodied in the form of Jesus Christ. And that really leads me to a final feature in regard to mercy, and it's this. Mercy is a risk. Mercy is a risk. When you truly live it out, you're putting yourself in many ways at risk. And speaking of Jesus, though, just to be clear, when he promises that the merciful will be shown mercy, I don't believe he's making this in reference, this statement in reference to karma, right? That, that what we give to others, that somehow that will come back on us. I know sometimes we think about it that way. Well, you know, if I'm merciful to this person, then that's going to come back on me. And, and I think in some ways that happens, but I don't think that's what, I don't, I know that's not what Jesus is referring to here. After all, think about this. If mercy carried its own reward, Jesus would have never been crucified. If mercy carried its own reward, Jesus never would have been put on a cross. Mercy is often inconvenient. It's often sacrificial. It's often expensive. Sometimes it's even dangerous. And the deeper you and I dive into the Sermon on the Mount, the clearer it becomes that you and I cannot truly follow Jesus and live self-protective lives. The life of Jesus from Bethlehem to Golgotha will remind us that mercy is not cost-free. But we do have a promise that when we show mercy, we will be shown mercy. That doesn't mean necessarily that we will experience that by those around us. But the reality is that promise isn't and really probably won't be fully realized in some cases until we stand before the king once and for all. Maybe not something that we experience in this world, but something that we experience in the next. And living mercifully can at times seem like sheer lunacy. It is truly counterintuitive and countercultural unless you believe in an overruling king and that this king is present and that his kingdom is present on the earth and that he delights in mercy and he'll bless the merciful. And keeping in mind that I'll stand before that king goes a long way in helping me to embrace the risk of showing mercy because I know how much I need it. After all, in me choosing to live unmercifully, I may be burning a bridge that I myself need to cross later. So I'll close with this question for you. And it is a question of action. It's not just one to contemplate and think about, oh yeah, this, you know, I, and, and I feel mercy in my heart. This is one of action. Who are the people in your life? And what are some of the situations going on in your life that are opportunities for the mercy of God to be displayed through you 
for his glory and his purposes. Mercy is as mercy does. And blessed are the merciful.